Yes, Carol. How every, yeah, thank you. It is ambiguous, I believe, intentionally so, that he and the, uh, in the blessing. So uh, I will talk about that. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Any other questions? That was question 26. Right? Question 26? Yeah. No other questions? Oh, okay. Oh, there go my glasses. Shoot, I didn't mean to do that. Okay. Well, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today, and thank you for this time that we have together, and uh, for your word, uh, and for um, the truth that it speaks into our lives. I just pray that um, we would be able to drink in that truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to review a little bit since we... Oh, Kathy, aren't you kind? Thank you very much. Yeah, you never know. That's why I do that, just in case something goes kablooey while I'm teaching. Um, I just want to review a little bit since we had a week off from uh, Ruth 1 and the setting and the themes and then the just rush through the story of Ruth 1 just a little bit. Uh, the story of Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. We find out in the very first verse, which was a horribly disobedient, chaotic time for Israel. Every person did what was right in his own eyes, and Israel had no king is kind of the refrain. And so within that time frame, then, this story takes place. The primary theme of the book of Ruth is hesed. It is sometimes uh, translated kindness, sometimes translated loving kindness, but it, it, there is no good English translation. It carries the idea of so many things. And, and um, one commentary said it carries the idea of covenantal loyal, uh, loyalty, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, mercy, love, and compassion, which prompted me to coin the term covenantal love, faith, good, kind, goodness, merlovshin. I do not think that that is going to catch on in theological circles. <laughs> but if you ever are reading a book and see that term... You know who gets the credit, but uh, yeah, I don't think it's going to catch on. Hesed is an action. Uh, hesed is something we do, and it works to uh, relieve or redeem someone from a difficult situation, from we might even say dire straits um, that that person is in. It is something we do. And obviously, God is our model of hesed. First uh, John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. And if I could take the liberties with scripture, uh, I think that's essentially saying we can do hesed because he has first shown hesed to us in so many ways and particularly through his son. So that's the primary theme of all of Ruth. And then we're going to meet in chapter 2 this concept or, or come across this concept of goel, of a kinsman redeemer, and the Hebrew word is goel. And, and a goel was, was a male relative uh, that served as an advocate for family members in need, for family members in material need. Uh, and so the functions of a, there were a lot of possible functions of a goel, a lot of ways that he could act as an advocate for family members in need. Uh, but these ranged uh, from everything uh, from buying back or redeeming a, 
a family member out of slavery, a family member having to sell themselves into slavery, and then the goel, the kinsman redeemer, buys that person back. Uh, it could include buying back land, redeeming land that a relative has been forced to sell, and that will come into play later on in the story of Ruth. Or it can uh, be marrying the widow of the deceased so as to raise up descendants in that man's name, which will also come into play uh, in Ruth. And so we will meet this idea for the first time of a kinsman redeemer in Ruth 2. Now the story begins uh, in um, Bethlehem where there is famine. And so uh, Elimelech takes his wife, Naomi, and their two sons and moves them to Moab, which is not part of Israel and is in fact an enemy of Israel. And this sort of thing, living among the enemies of God, uh, is something that God repeatedly in the Old Testament told the Israelites not to do. But Elimelech wanted food, and because of the famine in Israel and Bethlehem, ironically, the house of bread, uh, he moves his family to Moab. And his sons marry foreign women, also not supposed to do that. Uh, their names were Orpah and Ruth. And then all the men die leaving Naomi and Ruth and Orpah as widows with no men to take care of them. But at some point they hear that the famine in Bethlehem, in Israel, has been relieved, and so they begin to make their trek back. On the way to Bethlehem, the, uh, Naomi realizes that these girls shouldn't go with her, or at least that's what she thinks. And so she turns to them and says, look, go back to your homes. Your only hope is to find a husband you don't want to be saddled with me. Go back to your mothers and fathers and marry again. And, and eventually Orpah re relents and, and goes back. But Ruth does not. Ruth refuses to leave Naomi. And with these famous and impassioned words, she says to Naomi, uh, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severe, severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And the, the, <laughs> the Hebrew literally says she stopped talking to her. Uh, but, but this impassioned plea of Ruth saying, I'm not going to leave you. Not now, not ever. And so she continues on with Naomi to Bethlehem, and, and their arrival in Bethlehem causes quite a stir uh, with the people going, wow, is this Naomi? Is she back? And who is the woman she's brought with her? And, um, and, and uh, the barley season is just starting as, uh, as they arrive, which will come into play in chapter 2 as well. But Naomi has this blessing of a daughter-in-law, the daughter-in-law anyone would want to have, that is committed to her and who is showing her has said, and she doesn't even recognize it. In fact, she says, I am empty. I'm completely empty. And she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter, because my life is bitter and it's all God's fault. And so she, she doesn't recognize not only the blessings of, of Ruth, her daughter-in-law, in her life, but more importantly, the blessings of God. So that's where we're left, um, and chapter 2 begins. 
Chapter two is in three scenes. The first scene is a short three verse, uh, first three verses uh, between Ruth and Naomi. And then there's a longer scene, which starts at verse four and goes through the first part of verse 17. And it's a scene involving Ruth and Boaz. And then the final scene in the sec- from the second part of 17 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 23, there's another short scene between Naomi and Ruth. So let's begin then with this sort of introduction to the chapter and to uh, this part of the story in Ruth 2, verses 1 through 3. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now this first verse, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, uh, a man of standing whose name was Boaz, is like a parenthetical um, remark by the author. And at this point, this is information that we have information that Ruth does not have. She knows nothing of Boaz. And even at this point, we don't know if Naomi knows about Boaz yet. But the author inserts it here, that that there was a family member uh, of Elimelech's, and where it says of the clan of Elimelech, that's not the name of the clan. It just means they were in the same clan. We find out in in chapter 1, verse 3, that the clan is the Ephrathites. So uh, this is, uh, they're, they're part of the same clan. So in this this parenthetical remark, we learn about this man of standing, this Boaz. So it's, it's what, what uh, theologians would call a prolepsis. It's a remark that's made now, but it's pointing forward to something we haven't heard about yet. So it's a proleptic, a prolepsis, a proleptic remark about Boaz. And it describes Boaz as a man of standing. In the Hebrew, that's, that word is gibber hail. G-I-B-B-O-R-H-A-Y-I-L. And it's a difficult word to translate. The root word of that uh, actually means mighty. And and it is sometimes translated warrior. This term is sometimes translated warrior. But it can mean a number of things. A gibber hayel can mean a man of strength or power or ability or wealth. So you need a context to figure out what is this saying. It's not calling, obviously not calling Boaz a warrior. He's a landowner. Um, So what does it mean? Well, in this context, it is saying that Boaz is a man of wealth and status. So that's part of who he is. He's a man of wealth and status, of standing. But it is also likely saying that he is an honorable and capable man. He is a man of great character and integrity. He isn't just rich. He's a good man. He's a quality man. He he is a man of integrity, a man of character. Uh, Dr. Younger uh, says that he, he would translate this, that Boaz is a real substantial man of character. Uh, so that's, it's, it's commenting not only on his wealth, but also on his character. Um, 
and the clan was more than just your immediate family, even more than just your extended family. It was a, a larger group of relatives, but the clan was the most important social group in ancient Israelite structure, in, the, in, in, their, um, in their culture. Uh, the clan was, was, uh, was very important, and this concept of clan shalom, of clan wholeness, of the clan being, everyone in the clan being okay, uh, was very important. We miss this, I think, in our culture because our culture is very immediate family. And you can have, you know, blended families and those sorts of things, but you still don't rarely get beyond living in your house, your immediate family. If you go to other cultures, you will have grandmothers and grandfathers and aunts and uncles and cousins all, live, all living together. And, and this ancient culture is, is much more like that, that this idea of the clan, all of us being family. Um, is, is very important. And then in verses 2 and 3, Ruth, uh, we are reminded again, and we will continue to be reminded, that she is a foreigner, that she is a despised Moabitess, and she is referred to as Ruth the Moabitess, oh, which sounds like a disease, doesn't it? But, and that's probably kind of the way they looked at it, honestly, um, that, that uh, re- that's how she's going to be identified through much of this story. And she very politely requests of, which I find very funny, because I'd be like, we're starving, let me go get us some food. But she very politely requests uh, that she go out and glean so she can alleviate their dire circumstances, their their, uh, difficult situation. And she says, let me go out and glean and, and, and hopefully end up in a field where I will find favor, where someone will allow me to gather grain. And and this indicates then that not everybody kept the law. And duh, it's the time of the judges. Very few people kept the law. The law said that when you harvested your field to leave the edges, don't harvest all the way to the edge, and don't go back a second time to pick up what you left behind. Leave that for people in need to come and gather. But not everybody did that. And so she didn't know when she left to glean where she'd end up and what she would encounter in that process. Uh, but she asks if, if she can go, and there is, there is danger involved, possible danger involved, uh, because it is mostly men who are doing the work, and she is a woman. And what happens if she ends up in a field where she does not find favor? So she doesn't know, and I'm not sure Ruth cares, or Naomi cares that much at this point. Uh, in fact, Naomi's words to her It's actually just two words where it says, go, my daughter. It's actually, go ahead, my daughter. It's actually just two words like, yeah, go. (laughs) I mean, it's really kind of what she says. It's it's not, oh, that's a wonderful idea. Thank you so much for helping me out. Yeah, go. (laughs) Pretty much what she says. Get out of here. Uh, But I love this where it says, as it turned out. That literally says, as her chance chanced. She wound up in Boaz's field. I think at this point, even the author is winking. As her chance chanced, she ended up. And, and, and so uh, what, what uh, Dr. Younger calls in using hyperpo- hyper, hyperbolic uh, ir- irony, hyper, I can't even say that, hyperbolic ironic, uh, irony by exaggerating the idea of fate, he's really saying, guess where she ended up? by God's hand, where she ended up, in the field of Boaz. 
so God is the, is the cause, the uncaused cause, behind all these events. He is at work as he has been all the time. But it is Ruth who takes the initiative, not Naomi. Ruth says, let me go out. Let me relieve our circumstances by doing something about it. Naomi, for her part, seems to be still attending her own little private pity party uh, and isn't much worried in relieving their circumstances. But she does let Ruth go. And so when Ruth goes and finds herself in this field belonging to Boaz, she uh, actually meets up with Boaz, and Boaz comes along. We're going to start with verses 4 through 7. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvested, harvesters, Lord be with you. Now, when it says just then, Boaz arrived uh, in the, uh, from Bethlehem into the field, it doesn't mean that just as, as Ruth arrived, Boaz arrived. This isn't chronological. What it's saying is it's introducing something that's unexpected into it. So, so uh, it, we might say, and wouldn't you know it, Boaz showed up. As, as she was there, Boaz showed up. Or, or, and guess who showed up? Or, uh, but what to my wondering eyes should appear? <laughs> but little Boaz in his John Deere tractor or something. I don't know what, but, but something like that. It's, it's kind of this surprise. Whoa, Santa Claus is in the sky. Boaz is here. So that's what it's, it's uh, referring to. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess uh, who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter. You like this guy right away, don't you? He shows up and what's the first thing he says? A blessing out of his mouth for his workers. Uh, and and he, he speaks respect not only to God, but also for the men that work for him. And that speaks to his character. We've already been told he is a gibber ha'il. He is a real substantial man of character. And the first words out of his mouth show that. And then the second thing he says is, whose girl is that? Who is that working? But it isn't so much who is that. It's who does she belong to? Where does she fit in? to society. And the foreman answers, he answers and says it's Ruth, the Moabitess, the one that, the foreigner that came back with Naomi. But the rest of what he says in verse 7 is very difficult to translate and, and it's very convoluted. In fact, that last clause where he says um, she went into the field, oh I want to point out one other thing. Ruth is, is it sh this shows Ruth's character too, doesn't it? Please let me glean. She doesn't just go glean without asking, but it shows her character, and she's been working all day. So not only is she polite, but she is diligent in what she's done. But, but let's look at this last verse 7. Um, she went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Now, in English, what that sounds like is that um, she came and asked for help, and she's been working all day. Yeah, but she took a little break except for this one little break she took in the shelter. But literally, in the Hebrew, it says this. This, her sitting, the house, little. And this, in English, where are my English majors? Do I have an English major in the house? I want to make sure I'm not leading all astray. I don't have an English major in the house? Oh, heavens to Betsy, who's good at English? 
I want to make sure I got this right. I think I do. This is, and you're going to go, how does she know that? And you know how I know it? I homeschool a sixth grader. That's how I know it. This is a demonstrative adjective in, e in English, which refers to something specific. So this chair right here, you're pointing to something specific. In the Hebrew, this is also a demonstrative adjective, but it is a masculine one. So it's referring to a person. So this guy, yeah, that's kind of what it means. And now you go, but she's a girl. <laughs> what does it mean now? So we'll get back to it. Uh, it, it, it is, it is con convoluted. And the next verses are key to understanding what is being said here by the foreman. And so we'll actually we'll come back to that after we've read the next verses. So verses 8 and 9. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. This helps us understand what's going on because, because Boaz immediately leaves after this convoluted um, explanation from his foreman. He immediately leaves and chases after and says, don't leave. What do you think's happening? He's leaving. See, what, what Dr. Younger thinks happened is that this is kind of a, an embarrassed, uh, uh, confusing response from the foreman about something that's happened between a man, between one of Boaz's workers and Ruth that has caused Ruth to leave. And so it just may very well be what he's saying is, um, is uh, well, let's, let's first talk about what Boaz says to her, because Ruth may have been leaving at this moment, because what does he say to her? Don't go away. Stay here. So she may have been in the process of leaving. Uh, you know, stick close to my, it says stay with, but literally it means stick close to my servant girls. And one of the men may have done something to her that caused her to think, I don't have favor here, I need to leave. May have given her trouble, because what does he say? Follow the girls. Stick close to the girls. And then he says, I've told the men not uh, to leave you alone. Literally, that says, I've told the men not to touch you. Uh, and then thirdly, it may have had something to do with her trying to get water. She had worked all day in the hot sun, and she may have been attempting to get water, and the men may have shooed her away or done something um, to make her feel unsafe. Because then he says, when you need a drink, go get a drink. Don't go, to the, don't go away to get a drink. Get a drink out of our... The men will pour it for you. What? <laughs> yeah. Extraordinary. Uh, go get a drink. Whenever you need a drink, go get a drink from the workers' jars. So what Younger, Dr. Younger advocates for is this kind of confusing, embarrassed explanation from the foreman. When, he said, when Boaz wants to know whose girl is this and know about her, he's like, uh, yeah, this fellow just, um, and then he sees her leaving and he's relieving. Oh, well, she's going to go home now. She's going to go sit for a while somewhere else or go somewhere else. And he thinks he's gotten himself off the hook. Um, and g given the man of character that Boaz is, I wouldn't want to explain to him that one of my guys just sexually harassed a woman uh, because obviously he's treating her with tremendous respect. Uh, and now he knows who she is, as we'll find out in a minute, but he is treating her with, with great respect. Um, so uh, the, what, what that verse is probably saying is, 
something's gone on here. We don't know exactly what it is. Ruth is about to leave, and Boaz goes after her and says, please don't leave. Please stay here. And he grants her a magnanimous offer of uh, staying in the fields and, and unheard of rights. Men didn't pour water for women. Women and slaves poured water for men. And yet he's saying, I'll have my men pour water for you. They're not going to touch you. They'll leave you alone. Stick close to the women. So he's being very magnanimous toward her uh, and going way above and beyond what Jewish law demanded. It is truly extraordinary. And she gets it. She realizes, boy, has she found favor with this man, whoever he is. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? She, she is on her knees with her, with her forehead to the ground in front of him, which in ancient times was a posture of great humility and gratitude, bowing before him and saying, why would you show me such favor? And he's going to answer her. He says, Boaz, uh, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz has tremendous admiration for this woman. He finds out that's Ruth, the foreigner, and he thinks Ruth, the woman of character not woman, the woman uh, that's a foreigner. And he recognizes in Ruth what Naomi did not, that she was a woman of character that had shown tremendous said to her mother-in-law. And then he says, uh, ask the Lord to repay her and to bless her, uh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That word in the Hebrew is kenape. I actually think we get our word canopy for this. And, and it literally means the wings of a bird, but it can mean other sorts of coverings over something. And the picture being given here is one of a mother with its little bird. You've probably heard the story of uh, the forest fire where they found a dead bird and they moved the dead bird and under were these live little chicks that the mother had just swallowed up and kept safe. Or the mother in the tornado who covered her babies up with a blanket and laid on top of them. Uh, and she survived, but lost her legs in the process, but the kids were fine. Uh, and that's, that's kind of the picture that's being put here of this, of this kinape, of, the, of these wings under whose wings you have come for protection. Remember that word. I'm giving you a little proleptic teaching here. Remember that word, because it will come up again in Ruth. Um, and Ruth is very grateful for this. She says, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord? She said, you have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I don't have the standing of one of your, of, even of one of your servant girls. So she's saying, I am less than one of your servants, and yet you have been kind to me, which is humble on her part, but it's actually probably true that she was a foreigner. So she was less than a servant girl. Um, but it also reveals Ruth's humility in the process. So this is sort of the first interaction between Ruth and Boaz, and then they go on to lunch where Boaz shows uh, even greater kindness, I think, to Ruth uh, in that. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. 
When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got out up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up, and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. So Boaz extends his hesed toward Ruth. He extends the privileges he gives uh, to Ruth in this. Uh, she, he gives her even more food than he, she could eat, and he knew it was more food than she could eat. He did so intentionally, I believe. He didn't just take her to be a big eater. Well, she's been working all day. She'll probably eat like a farmhand. No. He knew she was a woman of character. She would take it home to Naomi. And so he was providing for Naomi as well. Um, and he's allowing her to glean even more than he's already allowed. Hey, as you're walking along, just throw some of the sheaves out for her to pick up uh, instead of just coming and getting what they've accidentally left behind. Uh, this is unheard of generosity. He is showing tremendous, has said to Ruth. And so um, Ruth works until evening and then she threshes. And it says, then she threshed the barley and she, uh, and she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. I think that's how you pronounce that. Maybe it's ephah, I don't know. But anyway, ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough, the, the, the leftovers from her lunch. Now this amounts to something like 30 to 50 pounds. I mean, who knows what an ephah is? An ephah is part of a homer, and a homer is how much a donkey can carry which is the part that got me giggling because they didn't call it a donkey. <laughs> I won't repeat it now, but I was, I was definitely giggling. Okay, call me juvenile, that's fine. But, um, but it, the point isn't the exact amount. The point is to show and to stress Boaz's kindness, his generosity, his hesed toward these women that he didn't have to show. He wasn't required to show, but he does it over and beyond. And, and underneath that, then, is the hesed of God. And then we learn something about, uh, about Boaz, and we also learn something about Naomi, because she's about to have an instantaneous attitude adjustment. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. All of a sudden, she's happy. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about one, the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So lo and behold, Naomi is feeling good all of a sudden. And she says, the Lord bless him. So now she's invoking God's name and she's not even blaming him. She's asking his blessing on someone else. Uh, her circumstances have changed and so has her attitude. And we learn that the field belongs to Boaz. Uh, or or it, I should say, we don't learn. Um, Naomi learns that the field belongs to Boaz. Boaz is 
one of their kinsmen redeemers. He is a Goel to them, not the only one, but he is one of them. And he has already acted as a Goel toward them in providing food for them and providing for their need, uh, especially generously. Now, let's talk about verse 20 here. When she says, the Lord bless him, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. That could mean Boaz. It could mean Boaz has not stopped. It could just as easily mean God has not stopped showing us kindness. And I believe the author left it intentionally ambiguous because both things are true. Boaz has shown said, has shown kindness to them, but so has God. And Naomi finally realizes that. But not only is she happy now, she has concern, she suddenly has concern for Ruth where she says, you know, you better stay with him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. The word she uses for harmed is actually stronger than the one that was used uh, by Boaz. Uh, not to, when he said, I've told him not to touch you, this means you might be attacked, you might be assaulted. So she is now all of a sudden concerned about uh, Ruth's welfare as well. Um, you know, Naomi's, as I just said, situation, her circumstances changed, and so all of a sudden her attitude changed. Uh, we can do that too, can't we? You know, you have a good day, and you're happy, and you have a bad, and you know, a lot of times it's the stupid little things like me this morning and a computer that didn't work that I yelled at. Um, the computer, and I had to take Katie to school, and we were late, and it, all, all different kinds of things conspired, and I ended up, you know, rushing here, and whatever, you know, it's not that, that's not that important, and so we, we oftentimes will allow our circumstances to control our attitudes, but scripture tells us to live by faith and not by sight, and faith tells us that God is in control, and he knows what he's doing. And whatever he is doing, he is doing for our good. He is working it out, working it all together for our good. Romans 8, 28 tells us that. For Naomi, life goes on. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So nothing really changes. And, and you know what Naomi is thinking here. I mean, come on, you know, he's one of our kinsmen redeemers. She's thinking romance. Any woman would, you know, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. She's already there. It's, it's in our DNA. And actually, Ruth probably is too. In fact, where Ruth says, um, where, do you see this? He even said to me, stay with my workers until they have finished harvesting my grain. That actually has an exclamation point. It's like, oh, yeah, he's one of our kinsmen redeemers. Maybe he'll marry me, I think is, is a loose translation of that. I mean, they're all thinking this, and yet we get to the end of it, and nothing's happened. We get to the end of the harvest seven weeks later, and nothing's moved along. And, you know, come on, Boaz, propose. Get along. You know, I can relate to this because... Uh, I realized very early on in our relationship that Jeff was the one for me. I had to wait a little while for him to realize it, but I was okay with that. I just waited uh, until he figured it out. But from the time he figured it out, you know, from that time that we knew we were going to get married, that we talked about it, and we knew, to the time he proposed was an eternity. And I remember telling people, why won't he just propose? And I remember my brother-in-law going, look, sweetie, I'd known I'd wanted to marry your sister since she was in the 10th grade. 
and proposing to her was the hardest thing I ever did. And I'm like, whatever, you know. And it just seemed like I was waiting so long. And why was he waiting so? It was less than three months. I mean, it was, I mean, we were married 364 days after our first date. I mean, these ladies are laughing because they were like, yeah, y'all went after it pretty quick. But, but we, you know, it's see at the time. It seemed like, let's get, you know, you want to marry me, I want to marry you, let's get on with it. Now, I will say, and I don't know if it was one of you, but the first time I came to church and everybody's like, yeah, you're engaged, you're engaged, when are you getting married? And this is May of 1986, and I said June of 1987, and they're like, what are you waiting for? So we got married in August, <laughs> which was a good deal. That's what, that's what we should have done. Um, you know what? We're going to have to wait to find out, too. I think you know where the story is headed but it's not headed there just yet. Uh, doing has said, God calls us to show loving kindness to one another. And I could think of a, a number of examples, but one of my favorites is one that happened years ago when Josh was young, and we had a family wedding, and I had to buy him a suit. He didn't have a suit, and I didn't have the money to buy him a suit. Uh, we were struggling financially, and uh, I went to the JCPenney closeout, and I found the cheapest suit I could find that fit my son, and I bought it. And I remember on the way home thinking, what am I going to do? What a, what, how am I going to tell Jeff that I just charged this money for this suit? Now, it wasn't an expensive suit. I don't remember exactly how much it was, but it wasn't expensive. But we didn't have that money. And I think I pulled up to the Avery parking lot, and up pulls my friend, Tony. Tony's one of the most generous human beings I've ever met in my life. And she walked up to me and said, I've been looking for you. I got an unexpected windfall. Tony is not wealthy, especially at this point in her life. She had two little babies of her own. I got an unexpected windfall, and God tells me I need to tithe it. Here's your cut. And she handed it to me, cash. It's the exact amount I paid for the suit. That's hesed. That's showing kindness. God whispered into her here, and she responded. And she gave that to me, and I have felt... So grateful to her ever since for that has said she showed me. You know, the old Christian song says, they will know we are Christians by our love. They will know we follow Christ by the way we show has said to others. Ruth's has said is all over and Boaz's has said are all over chapter two. But here's the deal. If the widows are going to eat, somebody's got to do something. If they just sit in their shack and say, woe is me, what am I going to do? Nobody's going to eat. And so Ruth takes the initiative. She says, you know what? We got to eat. Let me go glean. And she does something about it. But what she does about it has inherent risks and is hard work. Here's the truth about said: It requires initiative. It doesn't happen until you do something. And so it requires initiative. Tony could have kept that money, and I would have never known, and I still would have been her friend. And she was not wealthy. Instead, she showered has set on me by giving me that at the very moment I was worried about how I was going to pay for it. She sought, out to bless, sought me out to bless me. If we are going to show has said to others, we have to do something. And secondly, has said may sometimes be difficult. We're not going to end up gleaning and threshing all day in somebody's field, probably, um, under harsh, dangerous conditions. But we may have to show said to someone that we don't particularly like or that we've had a difficult relationship with 
or that we disagree with in some important way. Hesed may sometimes call us out of our comfort zones. And I don't know about you, but I like being comfortable. I like my heater in the winter, and I like my air conditioning in the summer, and I like to be comfortable. And I don't much like being inconvenienced. But ladies, if we order our lives around our own comfort and convenience, we will never, or at least rarely, get a 